Hi there. How are you? Great to see you. Great to see you. Uh, my wife and I, we are big Disney fans. Some of you know that. I've talked about that in the past. And uh, we take our kids a couple times a year. And uh, we, a couple months ago, we went uh, just for about three days or so. And uh, we left our house. Um, we got on I-75. And I mean, we were maybe on the road for like 10 minutes. And uh, we hadn't even hit Weston yet. And my daughter, who's in the back of our minivan, she says, Bobby, can I ask you a question? Yes. Are we there yet? And I'm like, okay. Um, first of all, you got to know something about me. I hate that question. Not a lot of things I hate. I hate the question, are we there yet? And um, so, you know, so whenever Mia asks or one of the other, you know, uh, Xander asks the question, Olivia doesn't talk yet, but uh, she yells a lot, but that's about it. Anyway, but whenever we, they, whenever one of the kids asks the question, are we there yet? I always respond, yes, we're there. How do you like Disney World? How do you like wherever it is that we're going? And they're like, this isn't Disney World. And I'm like, okay, so don't ask me again until you see cartoon characters talking. Um, and then I'll say, listen, and I'll say, you see, but the problem is when you ask, I, I, was, I was saying this to Mia a couple months ago when we were going. The problem is, Mia, when you ask, are we there yet? You're diminishing the fun that we're having now. We're having an awesome time driving to Disney World. So, uh, you know, let's just enjoy the ride. And let's never ask that question again. And then just say, oh, okay, Bobby, can I, can I just say one more thing? Yes, Mia. Um, are we there yet? And I'm like, okay, see, this isn't working. Um, but then the kids finally fall asleep, and that works out well. Um, and then I turn on the radio, and then that's usually when Carrie uh, gets out her pillow. And she says, okay, like, you know, since the kids are asleep, I'm going to go ahead and take a nap. And I'm like, all right, fine, you know, do what you need to. And I'll turn on the radio. And she says, yeah, but this is a little loud for me. And I'll turn it down a little. I'll turn it down. Yeah, this isn't really working out for me. I'm going to need you to go ahead and turn it off. But what am I supposed to do? I, I don't know. And so then she falls asleep, and I've got three kids asleep, and it's just me. I've been just like lost in my own thoughts for the next three hours. And then, you know what the worst part is? I think dads get this especially. Is that, you know, you drive whatever distance and then you get to the place. Um, and then like, at least my wife, well, she'll wake up and then the kids will wake up and they'll say, wow, we made such great time. <laughs> like, yeah, it's always great time when you're asleep for 85% of the ride. Um, now I will say this, and, and, and this is in all fairness to, to kids, um, you know, why kids ask, are we there yet? The reason why kids ask, are we there yet, is because they've done everything they know to do. So, you know, you, the kids have watched the movie, they've played the game, they've counted the cars, um, and they've done all the little things that we tell them to do before we get to the place. And so once they've exhausted all of those tasks, all of those games, whatever, it's like, okay, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do, are we there? And, and here's the thing that, that, that I think is important for us. I believe that Christians are much like my kids. You see, Jesus is coming back, but he's not back. And you know what we do as Christians? Is he here yet? Are we there yet? Rapture, has it come yet? Second coming, is it happening yet? What, what, what exactly is going on? I mean, how long do I have to wait? I mean, what exactly else needs to happen before he gets here? And here's the thing. People have been asking this question from the beginning. 
In fact, let me read to you out of the book of 2 Peter, because Peter, um, at the end of his second epistle, he realizes that this is the question that people are asking. Where's the promise of his coming? Look at what he says. He says, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's the question. Here's the answer. But beloved, don't forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you want to know why Jesus hasn't come back, this is why. Because God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, listen, in some ways, it's like he's just giving us more time. In fact, that's what another translation says. God is giving people more time. His desire is to reach as many people as possible before he returns. I mean, imagine if Jesus came back a year ago. How many of us wouldn't have missed it? Like, oh man, I'm glad I didn't come back a year ago. Because, you know, I just gave my life to Jesus six months ago. I, 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 I would have missed it. But now we've been with the Lord for six months. And we're like, okay, I'm ready. Beam me up, Scotty. You know, and, 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 but, and well, what about the person who's going to come to the Lord here pr- pretty soon? And so the question is, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. Is he here yet? No, he's not here yet. But what do we do while we wait? And this is the very thing that God wants to do a work in us as we wait. He wants to do some changes in us. He wants to create some perseverance in us. He wants us to get involved in what he is involved, involved in. And, and I believe that there's four traits in particular that God, wants us, uh, that God wants to work in us as we wait for his return. As we're caught somewhere between here and there. And it's at the end of 2 Thessalonians, which is where we're going to be. If you'd open your Bibles there to 2 Thessalonians 3 or open up your app or whatever you've got. Um, as we look at the end of this series as that we're closing today called How to Prepare for the End of the World. And what he's going to show us is, hey, we're, not, we're here. We're not there yet. He's not back yet. But there's four things that God wants to do in our lives in the meantime. So if you would, let's start in 2 Thessalonians 3. Look at verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from uh, from the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of and into the patience of Christ. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing that, um, that I want to share with you. Uh, if you're taking note in your outline, the first thing is this. What are these traits that God wants to build in us? Number one is to always believe the best. Always believe the best. I love what Paul says in these verses. He, he is believing that the Thessalonians that he's writing to are going to do the right thing. Because he says it there in, in verse 4. He says, you know, pray for us that we may be delivered from these guys. But we have confidence concerning you that you will both do, that you both do and will do. He says, I look at the past and I see that you've done everything that we've talked to you about. And, I, and, and, and in light of that, I believe the best that you're going to do the things that we command you to do. Now, here's what can happen. Paul is dealing with, if you look at what we see in verse 2, 
hey, pray for us. We're dealing with unreasonable and wicked people. And I mean, and well, I mean, think about it. You ever talked to someone who is completely unreasonable? Well, let me ask another question. Were you on Facebook during the election season? All right, all right relax. Um, all right. I mean, honestly, it was horrible. I mean, I, like, seriously, I, I, I was like this close to just closing my Facebook account completely as, um, you know, like I had, you know, my militant Republican friends and my militant liberal friends and every once in a while they would commingle and that was like oil and water. Um, and, and it was just, it was, I mean, it was unreasonable. It was mean spirited most of the time. Thankfully now it's over and we can all go back to those obnoxious e-cards and uh, farm bill invitations. Um, you know, that we've all grown to love. Um, and, and, but here's the thing that can happen, right? Is we can start believing because if we're around and we're dealing with unreasonable and wicked people, we can start believing this. That's what everybody's like. That's what everybody's all about. And all these Thessalonians, oh, I'm sure that I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop with them. And, and instead what can happen is we can start believing that this is what everybody is like. And, this, and I, this is one of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul. Even though he's dealing with people that are wicked and unreasonable, he doesn't believe that everyone is like that. He's assured not all have faith, but of course some do. That's the, the obvious thing that he's saying from, from verses 2 and 3. Girls, here's how it works. You, you, you date a guy and he's a loser, and then you start believing, you know, all guys are jerks. That's it, they're all jerks. Well, because, because you dated one, right? And, and, you know, guys, you trust someone, and they betray you, and then here's what happens. You can't trust anybody. That's it. No, you can't trust anyone. And, 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 and listen, this, this can even happen in our relationship with God. In our relationship with God, we go through a difficult time, and we think that, man, maybe God isn't good. Maybe God isn't really going to do what he said he was going to do. Well, what has God done in the past? Well, yeah, he did it in the past, but maybe this time is the time that the other shoe drops, and it doesn't, you know, it's, it's going to be the time that I'm, that I'm disappointed. And what can happen is, is that we can start living like, is everybody unreasonable and, and wicked? No, not everyone is unreasonable and wicked. In fact, Paul's writing to this church and these guys were doing great. And he says, you've done great and I believe in the future you're going to continue to do great. But see, and I, I just want to tell you this, and I think this is so important. This is just, it's just an important thing about how you want to live. I mean, you can, you, can, you can choose to live in such a way that you just believe, well, they're all jerks and you can't trust anybody and, you know, and you can do that. And listen, you can guard yourself so much and just uh, insulate yourself. I'm never going to get hurt because I will not trust. I will not extend myself in any way. You can choose to live like that. Or you can choose to live a different way where you believe the best, where at times you are going to get hurt. I, I wish I could tell you it's not true. It's true. At times you're going to be hurt. But you're going to have a much fuller and richer and happier life. Paul, uh, Joshua, God commands him. He says this in your notes. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isn't it interesting that God says that to Joshua right before he has to go fight this uh, incredible, all these battles to win the land? He says, hey, I just want you to know, it's going to be hard at times. There's actually going to be a few battles that you lose, but I want you to know that I'm with you wherever you go. Wow. Believing the best, believing that God is with you as you're seeking to do the right thing. You know, I, 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 I watch my kids. My, my kids have this believe the best um, 
mentality. My kids believe that once you pray for something, it's automatically going to happen. I'm trying to teach them like the, that theologically that doesn't really work. But, um, but anyway, but then they, they kind of get carried away. My son, who's three and a half especially, um, Xander uh, is, is three and a half. And his, the kids' prayers are amazing. Um, I mean, he prays for me every day that I get home safely from the office. That's like one of his prayers at home every day. Um, whenever they, uh, Carrie and, and him uh, and Olivia, they pray at lunch. He, as that's his prayer, is that Poppy would get home safely. And then um, when I get home, he'll tell me, Poppy, I prayed for you. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I pray that you would get home. And now you're home. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I, I appreciate that. Uh, well, the other night we're praying. And, um, and so he says, you know, uh, he wants to pray. I said, okay, buddy, go for it. Um, but one of the things he does, by the way, is that um, he's in this new thing where he doesn't just pray, but he prays for every person who's there. So, like, if you're ever at my house, he'll pray for you, too. It's pretty awesome. Um, but anyway, so he'll, he'll pray for you, and then, like, individually. And so, uh, I, God, I want to pray for Mommy. And he'll pray something for Mommy, and I pray for Mia. And anyway, so then uh, he's doing that, right? And so he's praying for each of us. And then um, he's, you know, God, I thank you for this food, and thank you for our family and our friends. And uh, thank you for bringing Poppy home safely. And I pray that Poppy buys me lots of cars next time we go to Target. In Jesus' name, amen. And then um, he turns to me. This is the best part is that he does it. In Jesus' name, amen. And then he turns to me and he winks and he goes, I prayed for you. Like, like once he prays, I'm contractually obligated to perform whatever it is that he prayed. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do have to fix that. Um, but here's what I do like. Here's what I do love about this little kid. This kid believes that when you pray, it happens. He just believes the best. And, and, that's, and that's one of the things that I love about him so much. He believes that God is faithful, that if you pray and just tell God what's going on, that God is going to do it. And this is the thing that Paul wants them to remember. Hey, listen, I'm dealing with unreasonable people. That's the way it goes. But I don't believe that about you. I'm believing the best about you because of what has happened in the past and what is going to happen in the future. But then he says this, he goes on, and, he, and, and he's kind of like taking the same train of thought, where he says, I've got these, these people I'm dealing with, but I don't believe that about you. But now look what he happens, because he kind of turns to this, and he says, now this is how you have to deal with people. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the traditions which he has received from us. For you yourselves know... How you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing I want to I want to share with you about uh, what do you do when you're caught between here and there is um, choose your friends carefully. That's the thing that Paul tells them as he's given them these parting words. Choose your friends carefully. And I want you to notice what Paul says. He says, withdraw from those who aren't walking with God and following the example that Paul has laid out. And he, and he contrasts two different types of people. He contrasts the disorderly, which that word literally in the original language means lazy or idle. Uh, lazy, idle, disorderly people 
And then he contrasts that with Paul uh, himself, who had worked hard as an example to other people. Because, and the reason why this is important is because like it or not, those you associate with will influence you and impact where you go in life. Um, here's how one author, uh, Charlie Jones, he, he wrote this. He said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Now think about that. Think about the five people you spend the most time with. Are you excited about being the average of those five people? Or are you like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Or do you say, that is terrifying. Um, and now, if it's terrifying, you may want to find five new people. Um, and so think about that. Uh, now, if, to me, King David and Jonathan are the best example of friendship in the entire Bible. Um, in fact, let me just read you a couple verses and then I want to expound on this. But um, here's what he says. A- after David finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one spirit with David and loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his robe, the robe he was wearing, and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, if you, you pause there, um, I want you to understand this exchange that happens here. He says, I'm giving you this robe. Now, why, why is that important? Because this robe is the robe of somebody who's going to uh, inherit the throne. David intuitively understands. David, even though Jonathan is the king's son, he says, I'm not actually going to reign when my dad is gone, David. You're the one who's going to reign. And because he loved him as himself, he didn't feel this sense of competition with him. And instead, he just gives him the things that would speak of the one who is the heir. And this friendship, this sword now becomes the sword that David always carries with him. Now, I want you to understand something. What we just read is out of 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 17 is the story of David and Goliath. Where David now takes, um, he goes into the valley, he kills Goliath. And if you remember the story, um, (coughs) one of the things that I love about the story of David and Goliath, and if you weren't here At the beginning of this year, we spent three weeks just looking at that story in a series that we did called Giant Killer. And um, uh, one of the things that I love is that Goliath says to David, this day I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, cut your head off and feed you to the birds. And he, and, and then David says to him, you know what, I'm going to cut your head off and I'm going to feed your carcass to the birds. The problem is David didn't have a sword. So it's like, how are you planning on doing that, buddy? And, uh, but what happens is, that obviously, slingshot hits him in the, in, the, in the head. He falls down. David takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off. And here's the thing that's amazing. Um, is that, I don't know about you, but if I was like the champion of Israel and I had killed Goliath, I would probably go hang out with Goliath's sword. And then, you know, somebody messed with me at the movies or something. And they'd be like, oh, you know what? what you want a piece of this? You ever see the guy I took this from? You know, and they're like, oh, no, sorry about that, sir. You know, that, and anyway, that probably like end a lot of arguments. But instead of taking that sword, which would represent all of his strength and courage and valor, that's not the sword that he carries with him. Instead, he takes the sword of Jonathan, which represents friendship and this fellowship that these two people have together. And every time he sharpened that sword, It'd be a reminder to him of who gave him that sword and the friendship that it represents. That's why Proverbs tells us this. It's in your notes. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. 
How do you sharpen the countenance of your friend? What does that even mean? Um, let me give you three, three ways that we can really sharpen each other as friends. Here's what you do. And this is how you know you have a, a true friend. Number one, by asking the tough questions. Real friends don't just talk about the weather or TV shows. Doesn't mean you can't talk about those things. But eventually it'll come down to the things that really matter. My friends, I mean my, my, real, my real friends, my real close friends, um, when we talk, they, they ask me about my relationship with God. They ask me about my relationship with my wife and my kids, if it's where I should be, am I working too much, and, and all that uh, c- kind of stuff. And um, they'll, they ask me the follow-up questions, because I, I don't just, well, you know, okay, we're pretty good. You know, the, that's not really good enough. Well, all right. um, and plus, your real friends, here's what they know. They know when you're not telling them the truth. Like, um, I have this phrase that I use when I don't really want to deal with something. Um, now, I don't know why I'm telling you, because if you ever tell me something, I don't want to deal with it, now you're going to know my... You're going you're gonna to know my tell. But, um, so, but here's the, when, whenever somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, I want to say, I say, all right, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens is code for that's never going to happen. But I just don't want to deal with it. And so um, if I'm talking to one of my real friends and I just kind of want to blow them off, and I'm like, well, you know, we'll see what happens with that. Like, oh, okay, yeah, all right. Remember, I've known you for 20 years. And anyway, and, this, and um, but listen, and that's the thing is that um, real friends, how you sharpen each other, you ask each other the tough questions. Uh, the second thing is this, by offering godly counsel. A good friend gives godly advice. The Bible says this, I love this in Proverbs 27. It says, ointment and perfume delight the heart. And the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. Uh, you, ever, you ever do this? You ever um, smell something? that is just clean and refreshing. You know, maybe um, you, you're like, you know, it's the end of the day and you're just washing your face or something. Um, and then you grab a towel and the towels just come out of the dryer and you just, are, you just put your face in it and you're like, oh, that's like downy fresh, you know? And, uh, and, and it's just like, man, that just smells. I mean, think about it. It's like, it's just like this good kind of warm feeling that happens. And that's what wise counsel from a friend is supposed to do. It's supposed to give you clarity. And when it gives you clarity, you feel better, even if it's a hard thing you have to do. Because what, the thing that causes most of us pain is not having, um, saying, man, I got to do this thing and it's hard. It's when I'm just unclear as to what I'm supposed to do. But wise counsel from a friend brings clarity. The clarity brings peace. And now it just challenges me as to what I'm supposed to do. Number three, how we sharpen each other is by setting a godly example. Setting a godly example. There's few things that are more powerful in this life than a godly example. And the friends that we have, listen, they model for us what we're supposed to do. Um, this is about a year ago or so. We went, to, uh, we went to Disney, but we didn't go to the parks. We just went to one of the hotels. And because um, just wanted to go to the pool and whatnot. And so the first day we were there in this hotel that we stayed at, um, which I've never stayed at again. Um, it is like, it was like the most confusing place to stay. Every time we went somewhere, it was like the wrong place. We'd go upstairs, downstairs, because they had a first floor, and then there was like the lower floor. And every time I went to the lower floor, like, I'm sorry, you need to go to the first floor. Um, and then when I was at the first floor, like, I'm sorry, you need to go to the low or the ground floor. And it's like, listen, can we just choose whether we're going to go uh, numbers or something? Because you can't have a ground floor, then first floor. Anyway, point is, confusing. Um, anyways, but then that was the, so we get there the next day, we're like, all right, let's go to the pool. 
And, uh, and Carrie's like, oh, let's go ask somebody about where the pool is. And I'm like, don't worry about that. I know exactly where the pool is. Follow me. So we have all of our stuff, and I'm just marching. I'm weaving in and out of all these areas. She's like, are you sure? Keep going. And we're just kind of weaving in and out as to where we're supposed to go. Sure enough, after two or three minutes of, of going through this maze, we show up at the pool. And she's like, Bob, that is amazing. How did you do that? And I'm like, well, you know, because it was total confidence. I never questioned where I was going. I just knew exactly where. And she's like, how did you know? And I'm like, well, truth be told, um, I've been following this guy up here who has an inflatable alligator. And um, I just, there's only one place you go with an inflatable alligator, and that's to the pool. And um, so, <laughs> but here's the point. Everyone's following someone. Everyone's being influenced by someone. Everyone has a picture of what it means to be a man or a woman of God. And, and, and that's what they're modeling their lives after. That's why the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, a very bold statement, follow me as I follow Christ. And um, see, the question is not, well, do you have any, are you following an example? Are you following a model? The question is, is it a model worth following? Is it a good model? Because the model that we follow ultimately determines where we end up. That's why Jesus said, follow me. That's why Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, look at what happens because one of the things that he's saying is in these verses, he's saying, hey, I want, you to, I want you to see those who are idle disorderly and I want you to see me, how we worked hard. Now, he says all of this because he's setting up the thing that he's going to say next. And the thing that he's going to say next is a kind of a pretty hard statement, but, look, but follow, follow me, look at verse 10. He says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, Neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you who are just in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, pause there and give me your attention. Here's the third thing I want to I share with you. Um, what do you do when you're caught between here and there? Right, where he's not back yet, he's he's still he's still coming, but we're we're still here. What do we do? Here's the third thing he says: give your best effort. Give your best effort. Uh, when I was in college, um, one of the many jobs that I had when I was in college um, was I, I worked briefly on this construction site, and um, I was just like a laborer. I was, in fact, my job uh, at this house that was being totally remodeled is my job was to rip off the roof tiles. Uh, put them in this wheelbarrow and then put them in, and then throw them into this dumpster that was in the, in the driveway. Uh, it was not glorious work by any means, but you know it uh, it paid the bills. And um, uh, the guy who trained me was this guy named Martin. Um, now the only reason that he had a job is because he was the contractor's nephew, uh, and it was one of those kind of situations. And this guy has to be one of the laziest people I've ever met in my life, because we got we got going, we got started uh, working. And uh, he, uh, I just started tearing stuff off and filling up that wheelbarrow and throwing and stuff in the dumpster. And he took me aside and he's like, hey, listen, this job has to last us all day. And uh, at the rate you're going, we're going to be done at 10 a.m. And who knows what other job they're going to give us. So I need you to slow down and uh, like, you know, just pick up a couple, then throw it in the dumpster and then kind of take the long way back. And then he gave me this motto. This is kind of his, this was his motto. And he says, remember, we're just taking this one break at a time. And that was like his motto for life. We're taking this one break at a time. And, uh, you know, anyway, now he, he is now living in uh, a 
socialist country living off the government. Socialist country, that's not America. Um, sorry, did I say that out loud? Um, and uh, <laughs> now, but I want you to see something that's, that, that's important here. Um, and this is why this is, uh, this is an important thing. Because what he's saying here, what Paul says, which is it's a pretty strong phrase. Uh, this we command you that he who will not work, neither will he eat. Because he's trying to show us something. And if you, if you read these verses, uh, that you walk in a disorderly manner, and uh, he says, you know, exhort them in the Lord not to do that. Now, here's why. Because, and this is something worth writing down, the work that you do reveals the work that God is doing in you. The work that you do reveals the work that God is doing in you. Working is not just about getting paid. Working is about having a testimony with the people that you work with. Um, I have two friends. Uh, well, I have more than two, but these two in particular, right? Both are teachers. Um, one teaches here in the States. Um, the other is, uh, lives in the Middle East and, uh, you know, started a school essentially uh, in, in, his, in his country. And um, he started this, this, uh, this training school teaching people English and, and uh, whatnot um, so, he could stay, so he could stay in the country. But he's really a missionary. But he started the school so he can stay in the country. Now, and his objective, of course, is not just to teach people English, to share the gospel. And so the question is, and this thing that can happen is we say, well, well, which of the two teachers is a missionary? Oh, well, you know, the guy that's living out in, the, in some other country. No, 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 they both are. They both are. The problem is one sees themselves as a missionary. The other just sees themselves as a teacher. Um, and it's a fallacy that we believe that missionaries are the ones that go to other countries and the rest of us stay home. The Bible teaches something different, that all of us are missionaries, that all of us are ministers doing the work that God has us to do. You see, the Bible would tell us this way, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The the idea is that the work that we do matters because when they see the work that we do, they will actually glorify God in the work that we're doing. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. The secret is you aren't a teacher. You aren't a student. You aren't a lawyer. You aren't an administrative assistant. You aren't a construction worker, a realtor, a mortgage broker, a banker, a mechanic, a cop, or a nurse. You are a minister. You are a missionary disguised as one of those things. And that may be, that job that you do may be what God uses to provide for you. But listen, it's a disguise. What you really are is a minister. What you really are is a missionary. In that place so that you may do work in such a way that it glorifies your Father in heaven. Paul would say this in Ephesians 4. It's in your notes. It says, And he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, a faithful pastor equips you. The saints to do the work of ministry. And you might say, well, Pastor Bob, I'm no saint. Well, see, there's only two types of people in the world. You might want to write this down. Saints and ain'ts. That's it. And you got to decide if I'm a saint or an ain't. But there's only two. And listen, the word saint, you know, don't think of like statues and anything like that. Uh, You know, saint is simply, is that word simply means someone who is set apart for a special purpose. That's it. Everyone who is a Christian is a saint, the saints of God. We are set apart for a special purpose. God has set you apart. You are in the work environment that you're in because God has set you apart. 
You say, but I, I, you know, I'm the only Christian in my office. Can I tell you something? That that isn't um, God punishing you, could it be? That that's actually by design? That there is a very dark place and God wants to send someone in there as a secret agent? As, as, a, as a missionary, as, uh, as a minister, to, sh- to uh, be a light in a very dark place? You see, but Paul adds this line, and let me, if I can, um, talk about it, because it's a little, it's a, it's a tough word, but he says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Um, why is that? Because the work that you do reveals the work of God in you. And if you aren't willing to work, it shows that you don't care about your God-given responsibilities. Listen, guys, a man of God does whatever must be done to make sure that his family is provided for. Because that is a, a responsibility given to him by God. And we, listen, and I'm gonna just, I'll be honest with you, we live in a culture where it's, it's like become glorified to not work. In fact, if you don't work, it's okay. The government will pay for you not to work and stay home. Uh, and you can do that for the next couple of years. And uh, listen, let that be said of others, but never of a man of God. Why? Because work is good. And you want to know what's happening? I, I, I've read, I read several articles this week um, about um, long-term unemployment and how it's linked to depression. And there's like this rise in uh, people needing to go to, you know, uh, uh, medication and, and uh, seeking the help of uh, mental health professionals uh, because there, this, uh, this long-term unemployment is, just, is, is, uh, is really messing with people's uh, mental health. And listen, and I want you to understand, this is an important thing to note. Paul is not saying those who cannot work, neither will they eat. He didn't say that. He said those who will not. So it's not like, well, um, I'm trying to find work, but I haven't. That's not what he's talking about. It's not like, well, um, you know, it's not an issue of disability. Well, you know, there's something that's preventing me from working. No, no. He says the person who will not work. You have the ability to work, but you won't do it. And there were people in this day and age that they were like, who cares about that? I mean, Jesus is coming back. Let's just hang out. And it doesn't really matter if we work or not because, you know, the rapture's coming and the second coming and all this. This is going to, you know, it's all going to happen. So who cares if we work or not? It matters. The reason it matters is because the work that you do reveals the work of God in you. Um, now, let me just say a couple things. Because um, I get asked this stuff all the time. And I get emailed about this stuff all the time. You know, well, well what if my boss asks me to do something illegal? Well, then here's my, and this is my, usually, this is not usually, this is my response. If, they ask, if your boss asks you to do something illegal, don't do it. And if that's going to be a problem, well, but that's part of, what, part of the job. Then, you know, find another job. When I had, in the first year that I was a Christian, um, I got a job uh, selling keys. And it was basically a set of 12 keys that could open any car. And so our market was uh, essentially calling like uh, towing companies or uh, junkyards, uh, repair, you know, kind of uh, places. So somebody brings in their car, their, you know, uh, somebody locks their keys in their car, they call a tow truck. The guy takes out this little set of 12 keys that can pretty much open uh, any car. I, I, now that I'm thinking about it, apparently, like this was a good market for criminals as well. Um, uh, if, you know, if they, that was their business. Anyway, I was there first day on the job. After two hours, um, I, overhear the, I overhear the boss talking about how the keys don't work. 
And, uh, and so he's like, yeah, you know, we tell them, but by the time they get them, you know, they're never going to be able to get the money back and this and that. And, um, and I, you know, and so I talked to another guy. I'm like, hey, do, do these keys actually work? He's like, well, probably not. And, and so I just, I just left. I mean, I just talked to the boss. I said, hey, you know, this just isn't for me. Um, and, and I just quit. I didn't complain about the system or the office or, you know, the man. Uh, and, it, you know, I, once again, I, I, I am ethically bound not to cheat people, right? Because I work for God. Ultimately, the boss might be signing the check, but ultimately uh, we serve God, not man. And so, see, um, because of that, I just I, I couldn't I couldn't be involved in that. But see, that's just what you do. Well, if, you, if I do something unethical, we'll just go and find somewhere else to work. There's lots of ethical places to work, um, you know, but. Um, well, you know, what if the boss asks you to do something uh, that, that violates God's word? Well, then you just go find something else to do but see what i find most of the time is you know it's not like um you know the, the boss is making us do uh you know something you know it's like well i just can you offer this uh, sacrifice to another god you know it's not like that's the stuff that's it's usually like well just was well, it really that and i think well i just don't really want to do it okay then then here's what i would say then just go do something else if that's not what you want to do but just don't uh, don't say that it's what the, it, what the boss is, is is seeking for you to do um I, another thing that i that i hear hear this all the time um and that's uh well but I, i'm i'm in a job where i'm being paid too little okay um did someone force you to take the job that's usually my first response no was there any you know you under duress in any way at gunpoint when you accepted this position no Okay, then you agreed willingly to this pay structure. And, and you've got to do it for, for the, the money that you agreed to or go work somewhere else. Usually the follow-up is, but I can't pay my bills with that salary. The boss won't pay me more. And this is where the conversation gets a little more awkward because my usual response is, are you the highest paid person in the company? No. Okay, so the problem is not that the boss won't pay more. The problem is the boss won't pay you more. And so, see, now it's, oh, okay, and so now the issue becomes, now what, if, what are you doing to improve your skills? You improve your skill set, and you're going to be able to get into another position, higher pay, and a different bracket, and all of that. But the, the, the issue is, um, and then I get this one sometimes, uh, but you know, my boss is discriminating against my religious beliefs. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I got to the office, and then I was just spending some time with the Lord, uh, just reading the scriptures and journaling, and um, then the boss yelled at me for reading my Bible during work hours. And, uh, and can you believe that? And I say, yes, and well done for your boss because you aren't getting paid to read the Bible. Uh, you know, the only people who get paid to read the Bible are people who like translate the Bible. Uh, and so unless you're like a, you know, or is that what you do? No, okay, then uh, you got to do, that's, that's not what you get, that's what you get paid to do. And so, um, you know, honor God by working hard while you're at work. Why? Because, listen, the work that you do reveals the work, that God, the work of God in you. And then Paul goes on this, this last section, uh, because here's, and this is the point. This is the point. What he's, gonna, what he's showing us is this, is he keeps kind of moving this along. He gets to this issue of work, and, and it's like, well, but I've been working. I, there's these other people, they've been totally lazy, and they're just kind of hanging out. And he says, well, we're dealing with them. If you will not work, you will not eat. And everybody wants to eat dinner, so they're going to start working. And then he says, but, but man, but what, what, what about us? Look at what he says in verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and don't keep company with them that they may be ashamed. 
But don't count them as an enemy. Admonish them as a brother. And now may the Lord of peace himself be, give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Here's the last point. Is keep doing the right thing. You want to know what the problem is with doing the right thing? We don't always see the payoff right away. And this is why many of us get weary. The reality is that um, most of us are good at starting things. Not so good at finishing things. Right? I mean, have you ever, I don't know if you've ever read a diet book, right? I've read one or two in my life. Um, and, uh, and, and if you notice this about a diet book, there's like, first 50 pages are like, it's all, it's not your fault. Right? Which I'm pretty sure it's my fault. But the book says it's not my fault. Like, I'm pretty sure nobody forced me to eat those cheeseburgers, but whatever. All right, it's not my fault. And then they start telling you about how great it is. Then it's like 10 pages is like the actual eating plan. And then they're like, well, what do you do next? And then there's like three pages at the very end of a 200-page book on how to like maintain it or whatever. And, uh, and that's because these book publishers know that we're really good at starting things, not very good at finishing things. We start books, we start reading books, and don't finish. Listen, 90, look, uh, listen, I'm a guy that writes books, okay? Can I just tell you a statistic that makes me cry? 95% of books don't get finished. 95% of books. Do you know what that does to me? It kills me. Uh, I just got done. Um, uh, my publisher just accepted both of my manuscripts, uh, so I'm totally done, thank you. And uh, so... <laughs> the book doesn't come out for like another 10 months, but at least my part is done. Um, and uh, I, I was like, you know, the end, they're like, well, we want to change this part at the end. And I'm thinking like, nobody is going to read this part, you know? And I'm like, we could just make the whole thing in like the wingding font. And it wouldn't even matter uh, because, uh, does anybody remember the wingding font? Okay. Uh, and it wouldn't even matter because like only like 5% of readers actually get to the end of the book. Um, you know, and, and it's, just a, it's just a funny thing that, you know, we're really good at starting things. Not so good at finishing things. And what happens is, is that when you're caught between here and there, right? I mean, we're, 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 we're not, he's not back yet. And uh, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. He's not back yet. So what, what do we do? Listen, this is the, this is the time when we want to give up. And, and this, well, I've been doing the right thing. I, man, I just, sometimes I'm just kind of growing weary in doing the right thing. This is why in Galatians, Paul would say um, essentially the same words. He would say in Galatians 6, 9, and let us not get tired in doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. I think so many of us, here's the truth, is that we give up just shy of reaping the harvest of blessing. Like we're, we're, we're getting so close, we've been doing what is right, and then we just get tired of doing what's right. And we, we end just short of what God has for us. Right, isn't that parents? Isn't that kind of how it works sometimes? Um, it's like, you know, you've been, you've been working hard and, and training these kids. And it's like, and you're just like, man, I'm just, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm wiped out. And, and uh, I get it. I get it. And what I'm asking you to do is not to give up. But to see that there really is a harvest of blessing if you won't give up. That the investment that we make into the lives of these kids will, um, will reap something amazing if we don't give up.
And listen, I'm like you. I get it. Half the time, I wonder if these kids are even listening to what I'm saying to them. Um, But the reality is, the example that we set, the training that we give, that's what's shaping them for the rest of their lives. And even though we aren't there yet, we're still called to do what we know. Because if we don't grow weary in doing good, there will be a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Listen, if you're here, and, and I know many of you are, are young, you know, you're, you're under, uh, you know, 25 or 30. Listen, let me just say something to you. Um, most people walk around in their lives with all these regrets over bad decisions, bad situations they got themselves into that, that have happened. And um, most of the time it was because we weren't living in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And here's the thing. You're young. You don't actually have to live like that. You, you can actually bypass the mistakes that most people make and live in light of Jesus' return and say, I know, I am, we're all caught between here and there. He's back, we're, he, are we there yet? We're not there yet. Is he back yet? No, he's not back yet. But here's the thing. If we don't grow weary in doing good because we realize that what we do matters, we can bypass a lot of those mistakes and actually reap a harvest of blessing in our lives, maybe even earlier than we realize by simply doing what we know to be right. Right? Most of us here working, working all the time. Can I just tell you something? Um, at, we have to remember this. And sometimes we just think, man, I'm just laying bricks. There's a story that's called the, um, it's called the law of the cathedral. And uh, what it is is that these, this man walks up to these two people that are laying bricks. And one says, what are you doing? And he says, can't you tell what I'm doing? I'm laying bricks. He says to the other guy next to him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral for God. Both doing the exact same task, both having a very different mindset. Because one sees the task and the other sees the vision behind the task. And my friends, that's what we need to do. We need to remember that the work that we do isn't just the work that we do. It's revealing the work that God is doing in us. You know, I opened this series telling you kind of a funny story about being home alone for the first time and uh, blasting the radio, jumping on the furniture and all that stuff. Some of you remember that. And uh, my mom came home. I didn't expect her to come home and things did not work out that well for me. Do you know that that's been the message of of, uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians? Every single message has been the same theme is we do this because in light of his return because of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ every chapter has been about being ready for his return because his return could happen at any given moment so the question is are you ready the question is we're caught somewhere between here and there he's not we want him to be back yet but he's not back yet are we there yet no we're not there yet but are you ready And where it begins is by giving your life to Jesus. He died for you. So you could experience his love, grace, and mercy. That you could take your next step with him. And that that could be the thing that just changes the entire trajectory of your life. Let's pray together. And Lord, I want to thank you for this amazing two books that we've been able to look at how your word doesn't return void, how you 
are just reminding us over and over to be ready because your return could happen at any moment. So Lord, may we take these words, hide them in our heart. May we take our next step with you, whatever that might be, and see you do a great work in us and through us. In Jesus' name.